There are many, many, many broken forms of spirituality that can easily be adopted in the name of Jesus. Broken forms of spirituality that lead to death, looks spiritual, all adopted in the name of Jesus. And at the top of the list is looking holy, but neglecting the inner life. Appearing to be holy, appearing to be in right standing with God, appearing to do things out of the motive of righteousness and holiness and service to God, but neglecting what is really going on on the inside. And the reason why this matters to us is because in many ways, this is the world that we are living in right now. We live in the gap between the two worlds where on one hand, you know, we recognize that there is something about Jesus that is worth following, something about Jesus that is worth pursuing. And then on the other hand, this world we live in where that faith and beauty and truth of Jesus has been mixed with a lot of other things, a lot of other stuff. And it's not even always necessarily evil, but it is a distortion from the beauty and truth of Jesus that we read in the Gospels. It's still called Christianity, but it is a distortion. Hey, so good to be back together today. Uh, we are in week four of a teaching series we've been in called What Now? And uh, this has been our after Easter series. Uh, this has been our teaching series in response to uh, the Easter story, really kind of built on this idea, you know, that after all that Jesus has done, uh, what now? Like after all that Jesus has done, what now for us? This has to be the question that those early followers of Jesus were asking themselves as they're looking into the sky, watching Jesus ascend upward and disappear, you know, into the heavens. Uh, they had to be saying to themselves after all this, like, like now what, you know? Uh, like, like, what do we do now in response to all that Jesus has done? How do we live our lives now in response to what Jesus has done, what we've witnessed him do over the three and a half years of our lives? And so the book of Acts really records the answers to these questions. The book of Acts uh, records what came next. And what we've been learning in this series so far is, is, is really that that from the, from the onset, the church that Jesus established through those early followers was one that was filled with all sorts of momentum, all sorts of incredible things. Like after the ascension, those 120 believers all leave the Mount of Olives. They head back to Jerusalem like they're instructed to. They wait in that upper room for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit who on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the Bible says it came like a mighty rushing wind. I mean, they, all of those 120 believers there, they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. Pretty amazing, right? I mean, this is the birth of the church in, in many ways. That same day, uh, Peter, who not that long prior to this, we read as someone who has denied Jesus three times, someone who... Uh, continually has to put his foot in his mouth because he keeps saying, uh, you know, all the wrong things. And uh, on the day of Pentecost, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches his first sermon on the southern steps of the Temple Mount. He's, he stands up and he preaches, and 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus and get baptized that day. And so on the, 
on the outset of the church, like in those early moments, we see incredible momentum where these, these 3,000 believers, this community, man, they are, they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're devoting themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They're all filled with awe and wonder at the many miracles that God has been doing through the hands of the apostles. And one of those miracles we, we learned about in Acts 3 was when Peter and John, they heal the man at the temple gate the crippled man who had been lame since birth. He's now in his 40s. He's begging for money, and Peter and John pass by him. Peter uh, turns and looks at him and says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. Uh, rise and walk. It's an unbelievable creative miracle in that moment, and uh, people are amazed. And the rest of the story says that, that Peter re- begins to preach another sermon to the onlookers who had witnessed this miracle Peter preaches another one, and as a result, we've now, we've now have 5,000 men who have chosen to follow Jesus. That doesn't include women and children, so we're probably in like the 12 to 15,000 range. You're talking exponential growth and increase in those early days of the church. Well, as a result, Peter and John get arrested. They get arrested because of the miracle. They get arrested because of what they're preaching. They're, they're preaching that, uh, that, that these uh, people and, and the religious leaders were the ones who, who killed and persecuted uh, the Messiah, Jesus. And so they are arrested. They're brought before this religious council, this religious court system called the Sanhedrin. And as they are standing before them, they are instructed, they are admonished to no longer teach or preach in the name of Jesus. Well, as I already told you, Peter has been filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4 says, Peter, then filled with the Spirit, speaks up and he says, He says, is it better for us to obey God rather than you? For we can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Like, I love it, right? It's incredible, these words. And so the Bible tells us that the Sanhedrin doesn't know what to do with Peter and John because it's obvious to them that these guys are unschooled. They're very ordinary. They're average, you know, fishermen or former fishermen. I mean, it's just obvious that these these guys are uh, are ordinary ordinary people. Uh, but, But it was clear to them that they had hung around Jesus and, uh, and so they uh, admonish them once again, and they tell them to leave, to not preach or teach in the name of Jesus. They release them from jail. Peter and John come back to these other fellow believers in Jesus. They gather in this room, and immediately upon their release, they, they, they come together and they pray. Now, they're starting to, to get persecuted. They're starting to, to, to face serious resistance to the cause, and And so they gather together with all of these other believers in this room and they begin to pray. But what's amazing about this is that they don't don't gather together to pray for for more safety. They, they They don't gather together and ask God to protect them and to keep them from harm and to make, you know, those who are resisting them, you know, go away and not come near. No, 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 no. Peter and John and all these other believers gather together and they immediately begin to pray for more boldness, more boldness. That they would, they would preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus with more boldness. And, and, uh, and, and they ask God for more miracles. That his kingdom would come. That it would, that, would, that it would come and establish itself on earth as it is in heaven. And, and so we just see amazing things going on. In this room that they are gathered in, the Bible tells us in Acts 4, that it, it literally began to shake like an earthquake. Think about the combustible power of God in that room. 120 people or more, whoever it is, they're all gathered. They're chasing after God. They're, they're hungry for more of him. They just want to be used by him. And the place begins to shake. 
And so what we see in Acts 1 through 4 is all of this incredible momentum in the church. I mean, these early believers uh, are, are experiencing all of this, this unity. There's a unity of purpose. There's a unity of focus. There's, they're, they're unified in the sense of, of, of seeking first the kingdom of God, and, and everything else is, is a distant second. And it's just, it's just unbelievable. You read Acts 1 through 4 and all the things that Pastor Josh has taught the last few weeks, and you just see like unbelievable momentum taking place in the early days of the church. Well, like you and I both know, as with any good thing, sin always has a way of working its way in to distort that which has been so good, right? And that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. And that's what we see as we flip over to Acts 5 today. We see what happens when sin starts to work its way into something that is pure, something that is good, and uh, something that has momentum. But before we get into the text in Acts 5, I want to just tell you a story. And it's a story about uh, a famous, uh, famous artist, Michelangelo, who many of you know that name and know that he was a, a very, very famous uh, sculptor. Uh, he, was a, he was a painter, he was an architect, he was a poet. Uh, you know, Michelangelo is, is considered one of the, the, the greatest artists in, in all of mankind, all of human history. Well, one of his most beautiful works was his carving of the Pieta, uh, which, which you can see on the screen, we'll put it up right now. His carving of the Pieta, which is Jesus uh, uh, being, being held on Mary's lap. And uh, this is one of his most famous uh, carvings. And so as the story goes, shortly after the installation of his Pieta, uh, which was originally commissioned by a high-ranking cardinal to be like his, his, his uh, headstone on his grave, I mean, that's pretty elaborate. Uh, it's since been moved, and today you can see it in St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City, but shortly after it was installed at first, uh, Michelangelo overheard uh, someone mentioning that the Pieta was carved by another rival sculptor. And so, in order to make sure there was no mistake, uh, Michelangelo goes back into where the Pieta is, is at uh, under candlelight, and he takes his hammer and his chisel, and, uh, and, and at night he carves his name into the sash across Mary's chest. You can take a look at that right here. He carves his name so that there would be no mistake of who carved this sculpture. You look at this, this uh, right here. I mean, the, he, he carves his name. It says, it says Michelangelo Buonarotti Florentine made this. That's, that's what he writes. In, in prominent front and center, right there across uh, the sash on Mary's chest, he makes sure that everybody who comes to see this is going to see his name. Interestingly enough, this was the only work of his that he ever signed. The only work of his that he ever signed the one that people began to attribute to another rival sculptor. So go back to the previous picture for a second. I, I want you to just see you have something that is incredibly beautiful, uh, something uh, that is without equal. It's designed to really lift your vision to Jesus. And yet for Michelangelo, getting credit for this sculpture seemed to be very, very important to him, at least in the moment. So much so that this sculpture uh, becomes significantly altered under candlelight one night because his heart is filled with uh, pride and ego. And it's not like this is just some 
some small signature, right? I mean, it's, it's very prominent. I mean, this is, this is a large signature. It's not like it's some remote place, like off in the corner, you know, like maybe someone will see it, maybe they won't. But it's like right there, all because somebody else was getting the credit for this work. The story goes that later on, Michelangelo, really in a place of, of repentance, uh, felt terrible about what he had done, and he resolved that he would never again in his life sign any of his works ever again. The Pieta became the first and the last piece of, piece of art that the famous artist ever signed. And so this, this is in some sense, I tell you this story about Michelangelo because this is in some sense what we come across this morning in a story we're going to be looking at in Acts chapter 5. It's a story of how pride and ego and a desire for recognition can create some major problems for us all by distorting the purity of the gospel in us. And so we're going to look at Acts 5 today. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can open up to there, and uh, we're going to have it on the screen for sure. But I want to just, before we even read, I want to just issue a fair warning, okay? This is a very, very challenging passage of Scripture we're going to look at today. And I want to just, I want to just issue a couple thoughts. Like, in the midst of, of a challenging passage like this, I want to make sure that we are careful to see Jesus' profound mercy and kindness, all right? It's important because you can read scriptures like this and we can all start to feel just a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. We can feel a lot of, we can start to feel some fear even. And I want, I want you to know that even in the midst of a challenging scripture like this, it's important for us to be careful to see Jesus' mercy and his kindness towards us, okay? And so my prayer is that as we look at this passage today, that this is what we will find both the uncomfortable challenge of Scripture on one hand and the mercy of Jesus on the other hand for where we all fall short, okay? That's how you gotta, you got to frame this up. Okay, so we want to we live in that tension where, yeah, there's Scriptures that for sure make us uncomfortable. And when we read those, we want to also be able to hold in tension the, uh, uh, the mercy of Jesus for where we all fall short, amen? Okay, because we're all going to feel like we fall short in a couple seconds here, Okay. Just so you know. All right, Acts chapter 5, uh, 1 through 11. Let me just get through the story, and I'll start to tell you what it means, okay? Um, verse 1 says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Verse 2, With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in and, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. 
Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. As you could imagine. Okay. This is a challenging passage of scripture to look at. A lot of us, maybe if you've read through Acts, you've read this story and haven't been sure what to do with it, so you just keep on reading, you know? Uh, and, and I get that. That's, that's, that's fair. And it's not a story that gets a ton of airtime in the church. And when it does, most of the time it's, it's mistaught. Uh, the story, in my opinion, has is, is all too often been mistaught as a way to come down hard on people who aren't tithing, threatening that something bad will happen if you don't tithe. And I just want to tell you, uh, like some of you are giggling, maybe you've heard that or whatever, but um, that's not what this passage is teaching, all right? If you're starting to get nervous, that's not what it's teaching at all. And if someone does teach it that way, if you've ever been in a church where it's taught that way or you ever hear it, you know, on a podcast or on, online somewhere taught that way, like honestly, I'm not trying to, to be hyperbolic, but that is a form of spiritual abuse in my opinion. It's not what, this, what's not what the scripture teaches here. Scaring people into tithing is never a good idea, that's not what we try to do. That's not what the scriptures teach. This, so, so, so I want to get that out of the way so we can really get into the meat of what's being talked about here. Because this story, let me just say, it is about money, but it's not about money. You know, like, like money is what's being, uh, like, it's, it's like, it's like the thing here that they're holding back and the, 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 that their, their heart is definitely like, like wrapped up in it and they, they, they de- it's definitely an idol, you know, that they're unable to like let go of. And it is for many of us, let's, let's be honest, but this story is about money, but it's not about money at the same time. Um, I don't have this on the screen, but if you want to jot it down or, or just remember this, um, Acts 5, this story is really about when sin first enters into a pure church. This is, this is the first like, story we have as you read through Acts of where sin really enters into something that has all of this momentum. All, like, I mean, think about all the things I've already said that have been going on in the church, like incredible growth people coming to faith, incredible boldness in prayer, signs and wonders, miracles, healings. I mean, amazing things going on. And we read in Acts 5, like, this is where sin really begins to enter into a pure church. And the reason why that matters for you and for me is because sin will always be what stops momentum. It will always be what stops momentum. I, I, you probably can, can, like, find that to be true in your life, too. Sin just always has a way of working its way in and stopping like what has been good and what has been you know, working and going in the right direction. And so we see here all of a sudden where sin just starts to take over. And you know, the reason why, 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 why this is important is because like, we all like, read in Acts about the church and then we like, try to hold that in, in tension with like, the church that we see around the world. And, and there's a lot of things we see today in, in Christendom, in, in Christianity, that is, is difficult to spot in the book of Acts. And, and, and so it's important for us to understand that, that when sin starts to enter in, when, when compromise is allowed, distortion takes, takes place, okay? And so this church starts to, you know, is, is vulnerable here in Acts 5 of becoming something that it was never meant to be. And so there's, there's, harsh, uh, there's a harsh penalty, obviously, to it. G. Campbell Morgan uh, says this, uh, and he's a, uh, a theologian, says, the church has never been harmed or, hint- or hindered by opposition from without. It has been perpetually harmed and hindered, and hindered by perils from within. Always, always. Everything you read in all of church history, all, all the stuff like we wish wasn't in the history of the church, all of it is, co- is, is because of the issues from within, not because of the issues 
from without. So what is the sin that enters the church? Let's just start to talk about that for a second, okay, in Acts 5. So the sin that is entering into the church here is, is lying to the Holy Spirit, seems to be like an issue here, lying to the Holy Spirit, and misleading people to believe that they're more spiritual than they really are. That's what's going on in the story. Ananias and Sapphira are misleading people to believe that they are more spiritual than they really are. This is one of the first examples that we have of Christians in the church holding a part of their life back from God. Something that is like so commonplace today was not commonplace in the first four chapters of Acts where it was like, we're all in, all I have, all of who I am, I'm giving it all, I'm letting it go, like, like you can have all of me, put me on, like, like I'll be, uh, you know, the living sacrifice on the altar, fire of God, come and consume me, do whatever you want in my life. That's the attitude and the heart of Acts 1, 2, 3, and 4. Acts 5 is where we start to see, like, like an example of, of, of some of the first Christians in the church holding back a part of their life from God. And the point of the story here in Acts 5 is that this type of life, this type of living, this type of faith, it ultimately leads to death. And for a lot of people, like, you know, it's not going to necessarily be a physical death, like, thank God. But there's such, a, there's such a picture here of, like, living like this, like, you know, um, appearing one way and, and, and that, that, is, that is not accurate. Like, it leads to a type of spiritual death in all of us. And so this is where we see hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is like the word that so many people want to use to describe Christians, right? Especially those living in the West, like hypocrites, right? Hypocrisy is what we start to see in Ananias and Sapphira. And let me just give you some understanding of what hypocrisy, hypocrisy really is. A lot of times we say that, that like a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and does the other. Right? You ever use that kind of definition? Like that's, like that's such a... A terrible definition. Because like all, that's what all of us do that. Like every day of our life, like we are people who say one thing, believe one thing, like are convicted by, by one thing and actually do the other. Like everybody, if that's the definition of hypocrisy, is doing that every single day. So this isn't unique to Christians and, and it's not just unique to a few of us, it's all of us, okay? Hypocrisy understood better in like the first century it was it was a greek word called um uh, uh like hypocritos I, I think it is you can uh, it doesn't matter and uh, it's something like something like that and but what it really means is is uh, um an actor it was meant to describe those who were in a play you know who, who were you know entertaining and so uh, a lot of times it'd be like like a character would would take on you know, more than one role in this play. And so they would, they would wear a mask, then they would go back behind stage, they would switch characters, they put on a different mask, they'd come back out on stage. So it's, it's really acting, it's pretending to be something that you're not. That's hypocrisy. So there's plenty of us who say one thing and do another, but it's not because we're pretending to be something that we're not. It's because we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, and we all struggle to actually walk out this, this faith like perfectly day in and day out. Okay, That doesn't make you a, a hypocrite. It makes you like a human who battles the flesh and struggles like to get this thing right day in and day out. A hypocrite is somebody who is pretending to be something that they aren't. 
most hypocrisy is an attempt at keeping up appearances. Right? That, that, and that's, that's really what we see going on here in Acts chapter 5. If you're taking notes today, I want you to catch this thought. In the church, there are two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. And it's nearly impossible to distinguish them from the outside. Because on the outside, Ananias and Sapphira look, look just like another church member named Barnabas who's introduced just one verse prior. Look at this in Acts chapter 4, the end, the last two scriptures of Acts 4. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, which is just an island right there in the Mediterranean off the coast of Israel, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, look at this, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay? It's awesome. Well, that's incredible. That's sacrificial. That's common in what was going on in those early days of the church. Well, the very next verse says, now a man named Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, brought it to the apostles, and laid it at their feet. It's like, it, it looks the same. It, this, what's going on with them, it looks like the exact same type of generosity, the exact same type of, of uh, sacrifice, and, and yet we know now, as we've read the story, that what they're doing is much, much different than what Barnabas did, right? This is actually the first time we see any mention of Barnabas, who's a, a man who, who actually became a, a, becomes an incredibly significant person in the book of Acts, a man who uh, travels around with Paul to spread the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. You'll find Barnabas as an enormous figure as you read through on, or throughout uh, Acts. But the first time we hear about him, he is a man who comes to the apostles with the profits from a piece of land that he has sold, lays it at their feet, meaning that he gives it to the apostles to distribute these proceeds, uh, you know, to, to, to help any needs as they see fit, right? That's, that's what's going on. This is like, his, this is his tithe. This is also his above and beyond. This is his, his offering, and he entrusts this to the apostles to distribute this out to those in need uh, so that there would be no needy person among them in the church. Incredible generosity, incredible faith, incredible obedience that we see in Barnabas. But in, so, so, so again, in Acts 5, just the next verse, sometimes that's difficult for us because you're going into a new chapter and you can think like, you know, change scenes or something like that. But you've got to remember that like verses and chapter breaks like didn't exist for, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years uh, until it was formatted for us uh, really not all that long ago. And so this is just like one story, continuous. Barnabas and then it's like, and then a man named Ananias and Sapphira, okay? And it appears like they're doing the same thing to the casual observer, right? I mean, imagine us here. Imagine, imagine one of you comes and, I mean, like, like, you know, gives a very generous gift and we're just very, and it's out of the goodness of your heart, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You trust it to the pastors and the elders here to do with it as we see fit to, to help make sure there's not needy per, people among us and, and, and that's great, but then what if, like, what if like another person like next week comes and does the same thing, and we're just thinking, man, that's, that's to, to most of you, you'd assume they're just doing the same thing that the people did the week before, but underneath the surface, like from the perspective of God, he sees that while this appears to be the same, it's entirely different. It's entirely different. Deep in their heart for Ananias and Sapphira lingered a love of money and a desire for recognition. 
And so they, as husband and wife, they conspire together to present a portion of their money while passing it off as the entire amount. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And this, my friends, is worlds and worlds and worlds apart from the attitude of Barnabas, but it looks very, very similar. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 are very interested in keeping up appearances. They wanted the same recognition that Barnabas got without the sacrifice. They wanted to give the appearance that they had done what Barnabas had done, but they hadn't actually done that. To them, there was a high emphasis on keeping up appearances, on image management, right? Making sure that that people saw them a certain way. I want you to look at this thought as we take notes today. There are many, many, many broken forms of spirituality that can easily be adopted in the name of Jesus. Broken forms of spirituality that lead to death, looks spiritual, all adopted in the name of Jesus. And at the top of the list is looking holy, but neglecting the inner life. Appearing to be holy, appearing to be in right standing with God, appearing to do things out of the motive of righteousness and holiness and service to God, but neglecting what is really going on on the inside. And the reason why this matters to us is because in many ways, this is the world that we are living in right now. We live between the tension of these these two things. Somebody who believes that Jesus is who he says he is, that he rose from the dead, that he is the resurrected Lord of human history, that he's trustworthy in everything he says. But there there is this dichotomy that we struggle with where we have Christianity which, is, which in its purest form connected to Jesus is true and right and it's perfect on this side. But then we have, on the other hand, what, what is called uh, Christendom, okay? Which you can put that, that word on the screen, Christendom. And what this word means, this refers to the worldwide believers, the worldwide body of Christians. So every person who identifies with Christ, every institution, every uh, every tradition, every variation, that, that all fits within Christendom. All, the global body of Christians. Christendom is what Christians in, in the name of Jesus have created over the last 2,000 years. And some of it is good and some of it is absolutely not. Christendom is in many ways human-driven thoughts and ideas mixed into the way of Jesus. And now, like 2,000 years later, right, all this time, you and I, like we live in the gap between these two worlds. Like authentic and pure and good, like, like Christianity, the way of Jesus, and then like this Christendom that has been influenced with all kinds of like broken human elements, and, and, and it can be very difficult We live in the gap between the two worlds where on one hand, you know, we recognize that there is something about Jesus that is worth following, something about Jesus that is worth pursuing, and then on the other hand, this world we live in where that faith and beauty and truth of Jesus has been mixed with a lot of other things, a lot of other stuff. And it's not even always necessarily evil, but it is a distortion from the beauty and truth of Jesus that we read in the Gospels. It's still called Christianity, but it is a distortion. And what we're experiencing today, like it's, it's nothing new. 
There's nothing new under the sun, am I right? Like, this, there's, this is nothing new. And this is what's going on in Acts 5. This, this distortion, this opportunity for, 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 for like, um, image management and, and broken spiritual elements to, to sort of make its way into the church and, and corrupt it from within. There are different forms of the Christian life. Let me tell you this right now. There are different forms of the Christian life that are mixed with broken human elements. And even though all of this sort of fits under the umbrella of Christendom, there are, there are so many variations that are a distortion of like what the purity of the gospel of Jesus is really all about. And I just want to tell you that like Jesus is not okay with half of him mixed with half of us. He's just not okay with that. Not okay with that. Look at this thought with me. In our world, in the name of Jesus, broken and false forms of spirituality can often go undetected, existing under the surface and attaching itself to our lives. And this is what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. It's something that's existing under the surface, something that, that, that you know, they may not even be fully aware of like how, how bad it is. They may not even fully understand like, like what's really gone wrong in their heart. And we don't know how long, you know, they, they've been, they, their heart has been twisted. And, you know, there are a lot of people who come to church week in and week out and many of them just unaware of the broken false forms of spirituality that are existing under the surface in their life. Not only does this begin to deform us, but then what we offer is deforming to others. And I believe that this is where Jesus just draws the line. He's like, hey, that's not, that's not, that's not what we're doing here. He draws the line at caring more about how to appear to other people than we do about how to appear to God. Image management, keeping up appearances, in my opinion, is at the forefront of the broken forms of spirituality that exist in our world today. And this is what we see then, 2,000 years ago. This is what we see now. And, and so again, if you're taking notes, there is all too often a hyper focus on image management and appearance and little focus given to the condition of our heart. Little focus given to the condition of our heart. And I think this is what we see that like Ananias and Sapphira, what's going on is, you know, appearing to be one way. But on the inside, that's not really who they are. That's not really who they are. Having the appearance of being deeply spiritual, but lacking any real substance. Coming across as righteous, but on the inside being full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It's like a pseudo-transformation. It's surface-level transformation as opposed to like deep, deep heart-level transformation that only the Spirit of God can do. And Jesus speaks about this over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Right? So appearing to be spiritual, but the motive is wrong. The motive is broken. 
Like, like he's saying, hey, when, 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 you, you know, when you come to do like the things of God, like in, in, your, in your moralistic good behavior, if it's coming out of a wrong motive to appear holy and spiritual in front of other people, it's broken and it's wrong and it leads to death. He says, don't do this or you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verses three and four, Jesus says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I, I, I love this because it really, it really is a great verse to really show what is, what, what, is, what is expected and what Jesus wants out of us in contrast to what we see going on with Ananias and Sapphira here, right? Wanting recognition, wanting to be known a certain way. You know, I, I, I remember one of the early churches that, that, that we worked in, uh, in the early days of, of, of ministry, I remember it was, it was one of this, this, this church that had been around for a really long time, and uh, you'd walk into different rooms, and it would be like, there'd be like a plaque because like X amount of dollars had been given to like, like in their name, you know, this room was like named after them, or this, and I was just like, I don't know, just strange, right? Because it just seems to go against like, you know, uh, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So I just want you to know like we're not open to naming rights here at the church, okay? Uh, if you, don't, you know, yeah, this isn't going to be like... Uh, uh, you know, Julson Church of uh, Irvindale or anything like that, unless you, I mean, I don't know. There's, some of you might be able to talk me into it, but, uh, you know, it's expensive, so. Um, verse five, listen to this. Jesus says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, okay? People pretending to be something that they're not. Don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. A reward in full. So why do we have to be careful of this? Why is Jesus warning this? Why do we see this in, in you know, the early chapters of, of the book of Acts? If you're taking notes, pseudo-transformation is when the spiritual appearances are not touching what is happening in your heart. The spiritual appearances, the attending church, the raising of your hands, the nodding, the bowing your head when you pray, the doing the right things, the serving. Pseudo-transformation is when the spiritual appearances are not touching what is going on in your heart. And so you're changed on an outward level, but you're not changed on an inward level. And I want you just to know today that God is most concerned with the condition of your heart. Of everything, I think that's a note you can take, but God is most concerned with the condition of of your heart, of everything in your life, top to bottom, no matter, no matter what it is, like this is what he's most concerned about, what is happening on the inside. First Samuel chapter 16, we come across an incredible story where the, the great prophet Samuel has been instructed by God to go and to anoint the next king of Israel. God has chosen to, to revoke uh, this privilege from King Saul and from his family line because Saul has perpetually lived in disobedience to God. And so God has decided that he will, he will reject Saul as king and is going is to raise up a, a new man who, through his lineage, uh, he's going to restart, restart this. And so God sends the prophet Samuel to the home of Jesse in Bethlehem and tells him to go there to bring a horn of oil and, and to anoint the next king that he will tell, the, tell him at the time who it is. And so Samuel gets there, right? They, they slaughter a, a calf. They're going to have a dinner. I mean, oh, they're going to they're gonna be together. But before they even sit, 
Jesse brings his sons out and he puts them in this line. And Samuel's job is to, is to kind of meet them, look at them, evaluate them, and wait for the Holy Spirit to reveal to him who is the king that God is selecting. And so Samuel starts with the first, the oldest, who's the tallest, probably the best looking. He's strong, looks like the obvious choice to be king. And God, God says to Samuel, he says, I've rejected him. That's not, the one I, that's not what I have. So Samuel goes on to the next one. It's, it's the second oldest. Same thing happens. God rejects him. Samuel goes through the entire line. All of them are rejected. Like, like none of them are the ones that, that, uh, that God wants to choose to be king. And so Samuel, as many of you know the story, he, he has to, almost foolishly, he asks the question, like, are you sure these are all your kids? Like, do you have any other, any other kids? And and Jesse looks at him and says, well, well there's, there's David. Like, but David's just out, out in the fields. Like, he's taking care of the sheep. Like, he's, it's almost like, yeah, you wouldn't, want, you wouldn't want David. Like, you know, there's a reason why David wasn't invited to, to this, right? David's own dad had no, no thought in his mind that David would ever be the one who was selected. David's just out in the fields looking after the sheep. And so the story goes that, like, they go and get David. Samuel tells him, get him, come. We're not going to sit until he arrives. David comes barging through the door, and the Spirit of God speaks to Samuel and says, rise and anoint him, for he is the one. And so in the presence of all of his older brothers and his dad, who never thought he was an option to be king, David is anointed as the next king of Israel. And then um, the Lord says this to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7. He says, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And so in the story, you have David, a young shepherd boy who is in obscurity out in the field because he doesn't fit the profile. He's out in the fields taking care of the sheep. And while he's out there, he's worshiping God. He is tenderizing his heart before the Lord when nobody sees it, when nobody knows, except God. And I want you to understand about David that it was the internal condition of David's heart that qualified him in the eyes of God to become the next king. The internal condition of his heart is what God saw and God said, that's my man. And he anoints him to be the next king. Most of us are familiar with uh, one of the most incredible architectural accomplishments uh, in the world um, located in India, the Taj Mahal. You can look at this picture right here. Um, this Taj Mahal is incredibly beautiful. People from all over the world will travel to see this. Maybe even some of you have uh, seen it uh, up close and in person. It's, it's unbelievable, the detail, the beauty. Um, the Taj Mahal is a tomb that was con- commissioned in 1632 by the Mughal emperor Shah Jahan to house the body of his favorite wife, Mumaz Mahal. I don't know how that worked out, but apparently he had a favorite wife. Like, I want you to know, I have a favorite wife too, okay? There's it's only one, but apparently this guy had, had, had a pick. Um, took 21 years to build the Taj Mahal. Eventually, the body of Shah Jahan himself would be laid in there as well. And so the, the Taj Mahal is this incredibly beautiful tomb with two dead bodies on the inside, and so you look at this picture, and again, like I said, it's something that people travel from around the world to come see and, and experience and take it in, and especially like think about when it was built in the 1600s, and incredibly beautiful on the outside. 
incredibly beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, it's just full of death. On the inside, it's just full of two dead bodies lying in a casket. Luke chapter 21, 1 through 4, says, As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Um, These were known as two mites, two small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. All that she had to live on. Luke tells us a story where there are lots of people here giving lots of money. They're giving all kinds of money and people can see what they're giving. And this poor widow comes along and she gives a very, very small amount. And Jesus says that her gift is the greater gift. Why is that? Why is that? Because of the motive of her heart. It's the motive of her heart. And I want to tell you today that God cares far more about the condition of the heart than he cares about anything else. The condition of the heart. If you're taking notes, God is looking for deep transformation, not of behavior, but of motive. You guys can come on up. God is looking for deep transformation, not of behavior, but of motive. Ananias and Sapphira, like I said earlier, they had the same behavior as, as Barnabas, but they had a different motive, entirely different motive. Look, like, if you've been here for any length of time, like, you probably know this. If you're newer to the church, this is important for you to know because we are not a church that is all that concerned with behavior modification. Right? Perhaps you've experienced what it's like to be a part of a church that is hyper-focused on behavior modification, right? Like, stop doing these bad things and start doing these good things. And I'm not sitting here saying that behavior doesn't matter. Like, it certainly does. Like, I would prefer that you don't, like, you know, cuss me out after the, the service or whatever, or cheat on your taxes, like, I mean, all that stuff. Like, like we don't, I'm not sitting here saying, like, behavior is not important. It is important. But a change in behavior has to come from the right motive, everybody. It has to come from a place of wanting to please God and walking with him, not from a place of image management and keeping up appearances. Like, for you and I, like, like real transformation has to come from having a real vision of Jesus and his kingdom and the life that he invites us into. Like, any other type of effort to change our behavior apart from this, like, it will not work and it will not last. And there are some of us in here that understand that, what that's like, trying to do all the right things, trying to, to not do this. And it's just like, I don't know how to, how to keep that up. And many of us have experience what it's like just falling flat because, man, it just doesn't work this way. To, to really change and transform, you have to be somebody who has a clear vision of Jesus and the life that he invites you into. The life that he invites you into. Look at this, uh, this thought. I just got a couple more things. Is it possible that there is more pseudo-transformation going on in the church than we want to admit. 
surface level transformation, partial transformation going on in the church than we want to admit. I am concerned as a pastor that there is a lot of partial surface level transformation going on in the modern church, maybe even in this church, maybe even in this church. You know, a lot of the reason for this is really, is really probably from people's desire to belong, to assimilate, right? To, to belong in, in a community. And so there comes a point where you come in and you learn which part of the song to raise your hands. There comes a point where you come in, you learn like when you bow your heads and when you close your eyes and when you nod your head in small group and all of that. You start to learn what psychologists call social belonging cues that we all learn along the way. Social belonging cues. Can, can appear to be the same thing as deep heart level transformation. It looks the same, but it's not the same. Listen, it, I want you to catch this thought if you're taking notes. Are our hearts being changed? That's the question. Are our hearts actually being changed? Are we becoming more like Jesus? Are we becoming more loving? Are we becoming more patient? Are we becoming more gentle? Are we becoming more kind? Or are we just adopting these group dynamics that we pick up in the church out of a desire to belong. You know, you can, get, you can get people who are bad to be good through a strong emphasis on behavior modification and through certain group dynamics designed to form people in a specific way. You can do that. That actually can happen. But you cannot transform a heart of stone into a heart of flesh that way. You just can't. It doesn't work because it is only something that God can do. It's only something God can do. If you're taking notes today, look at this with me. We must be careful to not become satisfied with the kind of surface level change that will stop us from leaning in for deep heart change. We, we gotta be careful that we never allow ourselves to just get to a point where we say, man, that's, that's enough. Like I've changed enough. No, 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 no. Like, that's not, that's not the call. Like, that's not the expectation. The call is like, hey, look, like, whatever you want to do with my life, God, you can do it. Come take me, change me, mold me, shape me, whatever you want it to look like. This is why we just don't emphasize a lot on moralistic behavioral change because it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work that way. That's what we see in the Pharisees. That's what we see in the 613 laws that they had, that they had to abide by. And, you know, if they violate one, you know, they violated them all. And you see all of this image management, keeping up appearances, trying to just appear very, very spiritual. Well, in Matthew chapter 23, what does Jesus call them? He calls them whitewashed tombs who are nice and shiny and clean on the outside. He says, but on the inside, you're just full of dead men's bones. Are our hearts being changed? Are our hearts being changed? 
We, for sure, you know, we, we spend time curating an exterior and an outward appearance. But what about the heart? And what about the inner life? I, uh, I think I got another minute. You know, Genesis chapter 39. I'm just going to close with this. There's a story of one of like the most significant characters of the Old Testament, a man named Joseph. Joseph is um, Jacob's son, and he's his favorite son, which puts a target on his back by his older brothers. You know the story, Joseph ends up getting uh, sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. They go back and tell their dad that, uh, that he was killed by a wild animal. Can you imagine? Your own brothers, your own flesh and blood, they sell him into slavery slavery and he goes off into Egypt and the Bible says that while Joseph was in Egypt that literally everything he did like received the favor of God so he finds himself working for a man named Pharaoh who is the head of the guard and as he's working for Pharaoh the Bible says that everything he touches God's favor is upon and so and so the favor of God over Joseph's life is transferred to Potiphar's life in all of his household. Like, so, so Genesis 39 tells us that like all Potiphar ever had to worry about was just like eating some food, feeding himself. Like everything else, like Joseph took care of it. It received the blessing of God. And so one day in Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife, you may know the story, she, she gets an eye for Joseph and makes some advances towards him. And Joseph repeatedly, like, like, repeatedly rejects these advances, says, no, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, and time goes on, like, like, she's trying to wear him down, time after time after time after time, and finally one day he's in the house of his master, and she comes around, uh, uh, she comes, comes along, and it puts, puts her hand on his, on his cloak, and uh, gives him an invitation Okay, you can read in Genesis. It's a little more graphic. So it gives him an invitation and he rejects it and runs out of the house and with her hand on his cloak, it, it, his cloak like, like rips off. And, and so she's rejected now, right? And, and she then yells and calls for people to come to her and she, uh, she blames Joseph for trying to take advantage of her. And so Potiphar, filled with anger, he puts Joseph in prison where he is for many years. Where again in prison, he gets the favor of God on his life. Eventually, they find out that he can interpret dreams and he's brought into Pharaoh's palace where Joseph is just, I mean, it does incredible, incredible, incredible things. But I think of the story of Potiphar, right? And it's, it's in, in, in Potiphar's wife and it's unbelievable. I tell you the story only because as I look at Joseph's life, it seems to me that he was much more concerned with his reputation before God than he was with his reputation before man. Because in a moment, Joseph, had, Joseph could have just given in. He could have just done whatever. And, and chances are, like, no one would have known. Like, they could have kept it hidden, and it might have made things even easier for him in his life. But what Joseph understood, he had a strong conviction that even if other people don't see it, God sees it. And so who he was in the eyes of God mattered more to, more to him than who he was in the eyes of man. And what we see in this very old story 
in the book of Genesis is a sharp contrast to what we see in the early pages of the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. You and I, man, we want to be people who care way more about what God thinks of us than anything else. At the heart of a thriving church, the heart of a thriving church is a people who are much more interested in their reputation before God than they are with their reputation before man. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? I told you that was going to be a tough passage. And I hope that you'll take that invitation, like I said, to where you'll be able to receive and feel the grace of God, the mercy of Jesus for where we all fall short in this, right? Myself included. Would you just bow your heads with me for a moment? If you're here today and you would just say, hey, Pastor Jordan, man, there's just some stuff on the inside that's not right. There's some stuff on the inside that people just, that other people don't see. And I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to just, to just cleanse that, to, to free me of that, to take that away. I want my inner man and my inner woman, my inner life to match who God wants me to be on the outside. Can I just see your hand today if that's you? You're just saying, man, God, there's some inner stuff. I just want it to go. Get it out. Let it go. Yeah, in Jesus' name right now, Father, I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would, you would bring freedom and transformation at a deep heart level to every person under the sound of my voice, those with their hand raised right now. Lord, we reject just the surface level transformation, the keeping up of appearances or appearing to be holy or appearing to be righteous. And God, we want to just lay ourselves before you right now and say, man, God, anything in us, anything going on in us, would you just take it? We put it on the altar. We say, fire of God, come. Consume us. Make us more like you. Burn away all the stuff that shouldn't be there. Change us and form us and make us into the people that you want us to be. And so, and so God, right now I ask for just internal, deep level heart transformation to take place. That the old stuff now would go, it'd get out, it'd be gone in Jesus' name. I pray freedom over every person under the sound of my voice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.